Welcome to the Building Management Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Imagine a building undergoing renovations, needing to shut off some water pipes and therefore leading to a dead leg of piping. Now imagine once the renovations are completed, that water is flushed right back into the system. You may have just put a pathogen in your entire building's water supply. When it comes to water treatment, whether on a domestic or processing side, simple choices can have drastic effects, for better or for worse. And no one knows this better than our guest today, Tony Self. Tony, Director of Engineering for Chem Aqua Incorporated, has been in the industry for over 40 years, and he came on this episode of the Building Management Podcast to discuss the challenges that come with keeping both consumers and workers safe around potential water pathogens, the effect of increases in government regulation, and how users and facility operators can make small decisions to have a big, positive impact. Tony from ChemAqua, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Wonderful. It's great to have you in the studio. Love doing these in-person podcasts. I always feel the conversation flows a little more naturally, so it's it's great to see you face-to-face. Well, it's good to be here, and I think I'll be able to talk a little easier looking at somebody. Great. Hopefully a pleasant face, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'd like to know first, you entered the water treatment industry around 40 years ago. And it's been all you've known, but you've known several sides of it, too. You've really gone from engineering to or from truck driving to engineering to a a whole mix of things. So I'd like to know what your journey was like into that industry. And then what was water treatment like when you first entered and how has it changed both technologically and then on the regulation side of things as well? Well, like you said, yes, I've been in the business for 40 years, Um, fell into it. I was... uh, a student at Purdue University, it was my junior year, and I ran into uh, a gentleman that owned his own company, just a small mom and pop water treatment company, and he offered me a job part time during the year driving a truck. Twenty six years later, Kim Aqua bought his company, and I helped him build his company over those twenty six years. Um, worked in the lab for a while, and then ran a drinking water um, laboratory he had, where you we tested pathogens. E. coli bacteria, things like that, and uh, heavy metals. And then in 2001, Kim Aqua heard that his company was for sale, and they approached him and they bought his company. So I uh, came on board with Kim Aqua in 2001. I was strictly in sales, and I uh, worked until 2008 in sales. And then the, they uh, decided that uh, I'd messed up enough in the field that I could probably be a manager and warn people what not to do. Amazing. You know? Yes. <laughs> So I went into sales management, and then in uh, 2016, they approached me about taking an engineering position in, at corporate headquarters in Dallas. So two years ago, my wife and I pulled up roots from Indianapolis and moved to Dallas. So I'm director of engineering right now, and uh, just using my experience in the field for 38, 39 years and, uh, and helping out the uh, other people that are in the field now. Yeah. Have you noticed that education is really important in this field, learning from people that have been in for a while? and A good education in one of the hard sciences is really helpful, but nothing can replace field experience because there's so much out there. So, And water systems are so dynamic. There's in change constantly. Yeah. And so the field experience is just, you, know, you can't replace it, you know. But uh, a good education in the hard sciences gives you a big head start. I bet. And it must be helpful having someone in the field like yourself to reference for, hey, 
I'm not sure exactly how to fix this or I mean, especially since you've been in so many aspects of the industry, you can comment on on a lot. Yeah, it is amazing. There's so many things I've forgotten. And when I get into the field with a with a rep and we start working through a problem, all of a sudden this memory pops into my head and I'm like, oh, yes, I remember this. Here's what we need to do or here's what we need to look for. So it's uh, I have a lot of fun with it. Definitely. So I'd like to know more about how water treatment has changed since you entered. So you said you started at a, a small water treatment facility, worked your way up, and now um, now you're overseeing a lot, a lot of treatment. So I'd like to know what kind of technology has changed and also on a regulation side, how has the government and its outlook on the quality and the standard of what water should be helped propel or just change in general the way water is treated? Well, early on, very little government oversight or regulation for uh, the water treatment industry when it comes to steam systems, uh, cooling systems, cooling towers, things like that. Uh, the only regulations were on the EPA on the use of microbiocytes, chemicals you put into the water that kills the microbiological activity and whatnot. As far as the technology, it was pretty, pretty simple, mainly manual turning of knobs and adjustment of water flow with valves and things like that. And what's happened over the years that's really developed, the chemical side of the industry has changed a little, but the uh, mechanical side with the new upgrades in equipment and then with the onset of the Internet where you can look at 100 buildings in one dashboard and see all the moving factors of those and be able to control them remotely, it's huge how technology like that has changed the industry. And then when it comes to the government regulations, what's happened over the years, the system that we treated, we were primarily concerned with keeping it clean, scale-free, preventing uh, corrosion of the equipment so you maintain your capital expenditures and investments. Microbiological control was strictly to keep the tubes clean so the heat transfer was adequate. Now, they didn't even think then of the problems with pathogens and disease-type organisms for the people that worked around the water and used, used the cooling systems every day. And so, particularly with the advent of uh, Legionnaire's disease, with the discovery of Legionella and how it can grow in these water systems, uh, government regulation, particularly over the last three to four years, have really uh, stepped up and uh, have a lot more stringent requirements on who can treat the water, how they have to treat the water, and literally what type of management plan and remediation plan are put into place to protect people from these pathogens. So there's just as much regulation for people consuming the water as there is the people treating the water. There's Not a- quite yet. Okay. It's moving that direction, but not, not yet because these are industrial process systems. Okay. So they're once removed from you going to your sink and turning on a tap and drinking water because that's directly supplied as a food product. These are a side venue of uh, people that come into contact with them, whether they actually work with the systems or whether they're just a passerby walking down a sidewalk and there's a big cooling system just in the yard right next to them with the steam pluming coming out of it. But because people come into contact with these systems more and more and they're realizing what types of pathogens 
that these systems can help to incubate and grow because these are uh, systems that actually what we look at is they improve the ability of these bacteria and these pathogens to reproduce. And so then the potential for people to be exposed and to um, get sick or have an illness is much greater. So walk me through specifically what some of the diseases are that flourish in these domestic water systems and what about these domestic water systems helps them to thrive. And why is that? I mean, clearly it's an issue because we don't want people to get sick and get diseases. But on a more detailed level, why is that an important thing to keep in mind on a domestic level? Remember, we're talking two systems. We're talking domestic water, right? piping that goes to the hot water and cold water that people use for drinking and bathing. And then mm-hmm. then you have process systems with water, cooling towers, closed loops, things like that to transfer and help to cool a building. So you have two different sides of it. Most of the problems we find with people that become ill from pathogens in whether they be in a process system or in a domestic system is related to how they're exposed or if it's an exposure potential. Healthcare is probably the greatest risk because the people that are there are sick already. So they're more compromised to infection. Of the people that get infections from from water systems in, in the healthcare field, 80% of those are prob- come from domestic systems, domestic water. And the other 20% would come from process water systems, cooling towers or closed loops, things like that. What causes people to be exposed to these things and why do these bugs proliferate in these systems is that, first of all, water, it's a source of life. And so if you have water in a system, uh, you're going to be able to grow bacteria. Also, these systems are heated. And so many times hot water, domestic hot water systems run between 80 and 115 degrees, which is the ideal temperature to proliferate microbiological activity. Next, you think about it. In a facility, not just necessarily healthcare, but an office building like this, you're going to have areas where water sets stagnant for hours on end. And that is a wonderful environment for biological activity and to grow. Mm, it's it's a small little utopia, honestly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then as a building ages, bacteria over time start to produce biofilm, which is that gelatinous material that they live in. You ever stuck your finger in your dog's water bowl and rubbed it along the edge? What do you feel? Icky, yeah. Slime. Slimy stuff. <laughs> That's biofilm. And you'll get that very same type of material to form in water systems. And then these bacteria can grow like crazy underneath that biofilm and reproduce. Then they break free and get into the bulk water. You go to take a shower. You walk in, you turn on the shower, and you get the water temperature where you, where you want it. What's the first thing you do? You stick your face in it and go, ah. Yep. Any of those droplets of water that you breathe into your lung could have a, uh, a bacteria or pathogen on it and could be prone to uh, cause an infection. Well, that's scary. Now, <laughs> now I'm frightened to take a shower. Come on, Tony. No, I'm kidding. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, it's clearly something that needs to be kept in mind when putting well, these systems the outbreak, together. What, two years ago, with the outbreak in New York City, and then uh, the development of the ASHRAE 188 Legionella Control format they put together, and also the state of New York 
has passed state law to where certain things have to be done and certain types of protocol have to be carried out in cooling towers, the process side of water, water side, uh, to minimize the risk of the potential for infection of Legionella and other pathogens. When we say other pathogens, we hear about Legionella all the time because that's the big political type of bug. You, you hear it a lot, but and it does cause a lot of infections, and, and, uh, but usually it's an opportunistic bacteria, meaning it will go after somebody that's susceptible or has a weak immune system, maybe a smoker, somebody on uh, uh, cancer therapy, immunosuppressants, things like that. But uh, there are other pathogens in water systems that are very common, strep, staph, E. coli, all those things that can cause really severe infections and because you have the environment, water, nutrients being pulled in through the air, uh, a lot of oxygen, oxygenated water, you're blowing air through it to cool the water. So it's a, it's a fantastic environment to grow these things. So when you're around them, you need to treat water systems like these, the process side, like you would if you were cleaning your bathroom and scrubbing the toilet. Gloves, you're going to use yeah. gloves, a mismask. You're just going to use good hygiene practice so you minimize your exposure to the to the germs. And that's what needs to be done when you're working and operating around these systems. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, the people that are making sure the water is clean for processing or on the domestic side, right, they're probably exposed to a much higher concentration of pathogens because it's on the it's on the slightly more untreated side of the water, right, if, to compared to the people that are just pouring themselves a glass or getting in the shower. Oh, exactly right. Domestic water However, you don't really have so much of a problem with the water coming in from the municipality. They treat the water, add chlorine or whatever to help minimize it. But you still, that water is not sterile. It has spores and certain bacteria that come in. And occasionally some of these bacteria or these spores of the bacteria, which chlorine many times can attack and clean, they'll get into a, a building's water system. And in a hot water system, most of them are recirculating water systems. And then the building becomes an amplifier. And they're able to start growing once they're in the building. So your water coming in is pretty decent, but because it's not perfectly sterile, occasionally you'll get bacteria that'll come in. And now you put it in a building such as this building here or a healthcare facility, and it becomes an amplifier. And now you can produce higher levels that can cause problems. That's interesting that from a building management side, that can be one of the biggest risks for incubating and then spreading out these pathogens. What kind of challenge have you seen in getting these systems operational, getting them efficient, making sure that they're not only controlling pathogens, but also providing remediation? What kind of challenges do you see? Building systems are dynamic. People are going in and renovating all the time. So they'll cut water lines and cap them off and you may have a dead leg now. That dead leg, if you don't remove it from the system, a dead leg is any piece of pipe that's over three diameters in length uh, where water's not flowing through it. And that just becomes an incubator. And then as water flows past that dead leg, it will, pick up, it will pick up whatever pathogens may be growing there. And now it's in the bulk water circulating around and it just needs an opportunity to, for somebody to become exposed. Uh, and like you said, that could be a, uh, a shower head where it sets for days on end and that people get in and start to take a shower. It could be ice machines where the bacteria grows and gets in the ice and then somebody as they're eating or chewing the ice, they accidentally um, 
aspirate some and get it into their lungs, and then that can cause a problem. What do they? So there's huge challenges, many challenges. Uh, most buildings, what they have to do is they try to go through and they will do a site survey where they'll determine the points in the building where a potential exposure risk may 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 be. Sure. Then what they'll do is they'll go through and try to put a plan together so that where these locations are for an exposure risk, they'll do something to help to minimize that exposure or that risk. For instance, people don't think about it, but aerators on the faucets in the sink, those little aerators, those are perfect environments to grow bacteria on those aerators. So one thing that people have started doing is removing them from the, from the spigot, from the faucet. And uh, so you remove a risk. The other thing, shower uh, that have the wands where you can pull it off and spray water over you, then you hang that wand back up on the shower, that whole tube stays full of water. So bacteria and bugs can start growing in there. So one way to minimize the risk is don't put the shower head back up on the holder. Let it hang free toward the floor. But you have to make sure that it's short enough that it doesn't touch the floor. And when it comes to the process-side cooling towers, uh, it's the Center for Disease Control recommend that they're regularly cleaned at least twice a year because a cooling tower is an air washer. You're pulling air in to cool process water. And so it's really important that those are cleaned twice a year so you keep the dirt, the mud, and the debris because that gives an environment for amplification of bacteria and uh, pathogens. It's scary. It's tough that small little mistakes like doing some building renovations, leaving a pipe with some basically sitting water and then flushing that back through the system could be the catalyst for spreading a really tough disease to combat. Oh, exactly right. And so what the state of New York and uh, and it's if it's moving to probably be a national thing uh, uh, eventually. But what they've done is they require people to put together what we call a water management plan where you go in and literally look at your building water systems. Find out the areas where risk occur can occur, then remediate uh, those type of uh, to to lower the risk, not remediate, but to put in systems or or procedures to minimize the risk. Then you have to validate if your procedures are working, and that's where you literally will go in, pull samples to test for bacteria. But be ready because it's not if you're going to find it; it's when you're going to find it. And then so before you start validating. Uh, you want to make sure that you have a remediation plan in place so that when you find it, then you can take action to uh, to uh, remediate and to get the system back in uh, operational order. Well, yeah, and it, it's important for that kind of standard to make its way across the whole nation, I think. I know we were talking about this before we started the podcast, but I read this really in-depth, interesting article that Bill Gates shared, actually, on uh, LinkedIn, I believe, or maybe it was Facebook. It was somewhere. I saw it somewhere. But it was talking about the United States' preparedness for the next big disease outbreak and that in many ways we are prepared and in many glaring, simple ways we're not. And I think small things like this, like making sure – piping in buildings or, you know, is is treated, making sure that when you are doing renovations to a building as a facility manager, you have that in mind, that you make sure, okay, we can't leave this water sitting here for too long and then pump it back through the system. 
we're not trying to infect all the people in our building, right? It's those little preemptive steps that everyone can start to take that will change the standard because if we don't do anything about it and we only try to uh, react to a big outbreak instead of try to prevent it and be um, proactive, then I think we're in for some big trouble. Oh, you're exactly right. The little steps, just like you mentioned, the, uh, the little things you can do when you're renovating a building, the little things you can do when you are um, walking through and putting in faucets that you stay away from aerators, the yeah, example I right. used earlier, just little things like that. The things that you can do, just good maintenance and good uh, hygiene on systems makes a big difference in uh, whether your uh, system is just uh, status quo or you're actually amplifying the problem. And this is a little segue, but it's a strange balance now that as the United States is seeing more of a push for regulation, at the same time now, a lot of these smaller regional companies who do treat the water might be in sort of a bind because they can't afford or they can't meet those new requirements on a nationwide level. So better quality, but then also kind of putting some people out of business. So it's it's a tough balance. What has your take been on that? Having been in for so long, what have you seen? I've seen a lot of companies sell out to larger companies. We've purchased a number of companies over the years for that very reason. Um, not just the fact they can't meet regulations, but they cannot, um, uh, cash flow becomes a problem because some, uh, some of these companies work on pretty low margins. And so it's very difficult. But as regulations become more national and less local, uh, the small individual, I ca we call them mom and pop companies, they are not staffed to be able to meet these requirements. And so as customers or as as prospects or as the industry, the pressures put on them to raise the bar on how they treat water and what's required, they look to other companies that can carry that regulatory side to help them out. And so, yeah, it's difficult. It's a two-edged sword. I, the you know, uh, small business is what's made the United States great. But uh, this, you know, as you change, as technology changes, these small a lot of these small businesses just have to uh, have to consolidate or sell to a larger company. It, would that be your advice then for for a small business in this situation, or do you have any other advice for adaptability in this kind of situation? There are companies that literally have the capability to work with a smaller company and do the regulatory side of it. For competition, I would encourage those companies to reach out to some of these other companies that with the support staff to help them with the regulatory requirements. And more and more of those comp companies are becoming coming into existence because there's a market. Yeah, I think that double-edged sword is almost a necessary evil to a degree, like the fact that we're starting to notice and make a bigger priority of being proactive about pathogen control and making sure our systems are in order. And it's a difficult thing to look at. And you don't want to say, well, you know, I want my business to thrive. So why are we adding all these new requirements? You know, you sort of have to look at the bigger picture that, yeah, maybe some of these smaller businesses will have to sell out or have to get some mentorship or just go under for the overall standard to increase. Look at the automotive industry. It's a prime example. You've had numerous companies uh, start up, go out of business, uh, and it's because government regulations many times, you need to make these cars safer. You need to do things, and the smaller companies can't 
retrofit their manufacturing process to keep up. Today, cars are so much safer. Uh, your older sedans back in the 60s, when you hit something, the brunt of the force was taken on the passenger. Now, the cars today, when you hit something, the brunt of the force is absorbed by the car, and deaths from traffic accidents have plummeted compared to what it was in the 60s. So I think you're seeing the same thing here. As the technology and the requirements evolve, you're going to have a better, better program, better protection, and companies will evolve to be able to handle that both large and smaller companies. It's a necessary change, but it's exciting too. And I'm, I'm glad that you're seeing this change because it's reassuring from just a consumer or user level that companies are putting more emphasis on making sure that the water is treated, the water is safe, and it's it's really safe. You know, not only are the people consuming it, not only can they feel okay, gargling a little bit of shower water, but also the people working on the process systems, like you said, they feel safe around the water. They can treat it and they don't feel like they're going to be patient zero for the next big outbreak. Education is, is so important. And any type of water system that we're talking about that we work with, whether it be domestic or process, there's a partnership involved. There's the water treatment company that will help to set up a program and give guidance. And then there's the owners themselves and the operations people that, like you said earlier, do those little things that they need to do on a day-to-day basis. And between the two, you can have a system that operates, you minimize the risk and um, and uh, the chances for uh, for problems and uh, a need for remediation are really reduced. All right. Thank you so much, Tony, for coming on the podcast and giving us this rundown of changes in regulations in the water treatment industry, both from a domestic side and a processes side. You know, I think I think we're entering a phase where a lot of these sort of industries, like you said, automotive, um, water treatment, anything that has to do with health and has to do with well-being of humanity are reaching a peak. Uh, we're starting to notice it's time to make some changes so that people stay safe, the environment stays safe. I mean, like anything from from uh, recycling entire buildings, you know, like just finding ways to minimize your ecological impact. I think it's the same trend we're starting to see in making sure that humanity doesn't get wiped off the face of the earth by our own missteps, right? And so it's a necessary change and it's exciting to see. So I want to thank you for giving us this insight. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, It's been a pleasure to visit and share a little information from our industry. And uh, we hope that what little bit of information we were able to to spread out there. People can have a better understanding of uh, their building water systems and uh, that uh, the the regulations that are coming on board are only going to benefit us in the long run. Good. Amazing. Well, thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.